The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, October 24th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Ebola, ISIS, White House fence jumpers, militant Islamic Canadians. Canadians! Our world seems in crisis. Solutions are few. Some say we need a stronger leader to fight the scourges. Others say we need more humility to know when not to fight. We need to be smart. We need to be vigilant. We need a better plan of attack. We need a better plan of retreat. I say no. Here's what I say we need. We need a better enemy. And I'm happy to announce we have one. The GIST presents its first annual American Enemy of the Year, Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un is the despotic leader of North Korea, a backwards and isolated state of 25 million oppressed souls known as the Hermit Kingdom. Now think about that adjective, hermit, like the crab in glass tanks in elementary schools throughout America. Think of the other adjectives preceding our other enemies, militant, deadly, deranged, virulent. I'll take hermit. Uh, Mike? Yeah? Kim Jong-un killed his uncle and all of his uncle's living descendants. And the UN says he's responsible for crimes against humanity, like torture and the execution of political prisoners being held in shadowy camps. All right. Thank you for that, Producer Andrea. Still, Kim Jong-un walks with a cane. Why? Possibly a busted ligament. Kim Jong-un has nuclear ambitions, but crappy rockets. Kim Jong-un is benign enough to be a recurring character on Saturday Night Live. He's manageable, short, vain, hapless, and now hobbled. But is he evil enough? Yes, Kim Jong-un presides over North Korea, part of the axis of evil. Was Syria in the axis of evil? No. So along with Iran and Iraq, North Korea was. Sure, Iran and Iraq might have been the will-I-am and Fergie of the axis of evil, making North Korea the apple-de-app or taboo. But he's an easy enemy, the kind of enemy that makes you feel good about yourself. Thanks, Kim Jong-un, our enemy of the year. And remember, the enemy of our enemy is our friend, but the frenemy of your enabler is some guy who lived down the hall from you in college and was, I think, like really into Dave Matthews. Okay, on the show today, a plant that used to be an enemy but is now having a renaissance. It's marijuana. And the editor of High Times is here. And in the spiel, I will talk about one of those bonafide scary threats that I mentioned at the top of the show. But first, to the Senate, let's do the numbers. Elections are about choices, about aspirations, about policy, personality, and persistence. But you know, those things are hard to measure, so we invented math. Elections, they're a week from Tuesday. Let's review the Senate math. Right now, there are 45 Republicans in the Senate. I'm just going to say Republicans, because when you start adding who's actually an independent, it gets a little more complicated. The Republicans are the Republicans. So there are 45 Republicans now. They're looking to get to 51. If they get to 50, it'll be a tie. Joe Biden will break the tie. So how do they get to 51? Well, it looks very likely Republicans are going to flip the current Democratic Senate-held seats of West Virginia and Montana, and quite likely they're going to gain South Dakota, as we talked about on this program a couple days ago. So that means everyone is looking at states like Georgia, Kansas, Kentucky, Iowa, Arkansas, Alaska, Louisiana. For the narrow picture of this big picture, I'm joined by Harry Enton, senior political writer at 538, and 
an expert on polling. Hello, Harry. Thanks for having me. So right now your site says Democrats have, what, a 34 percent chance of retaining the Senate? That sounds about right. So of those, let's look at the races where they're trailing. How many will they have to win to make that 34 percent prediction come true? I mean, as long as they continue to trail in most of the states they're trailing in, they're gone. They have to really turn the table in order to win at this point. So what are the states that they could uh, ter- most likely to turn the table in right now where they're behind in the polls? Georgia is probably number one. Mm-hmm. This is a state that surprised a lot of us, but Michelle Nunn running a very strong campaign down there. But the big asterisk in that race is she needs to get to 50 percent on November 4th. And if she doesn't get the 50 percent plus one, then we have a January runoff. And how will that change things? Is there an independent? Is there a spoiler? Is there a libertarian taking 4%? Right. Amanda Swafford is the libertarian candidate. She is taking 3, 4, 5% of the polls. If she holds, we're going to a runoff. And libertarian votes usually, if they become votes in the general, they go Republican? In Georgia, that's been the case. What Michelle Nunn is doing is taking advantage. She seems really disciplined. She's outperforming, I think, what the atmosphere of Georgia is. Sure, it's demographically changing, but it's still a pretty Republican state, and she's doing pretty well. Yeah, she has a great name. Obviously, her father was a very well-known senator from that state, Sam Nunn. And David Perdue has run an awful campaign, in my mind. Outsourcing has been a big problem for him. You know, Richie Rich, the Republican, right, yeah. strikes once again in Georgia. And Nunn has amazingly been leading in the last few polls. Purdue hasn't led in a poll in three weeks. Nunn, at this point, I think might actually, probably actually will win on Election Day or lead on Election mm-hmm. Day, but not get to 50. If Nunn takes Georgia for the Democrats, will the Democrats then hold the Senate? Or does there have to be another yeah. kind of surprise? See, that's the big problem, isn't it? They need a win there. Then they need a win in Kansas. Well, they can't win in Kansas, but obviously Greg Orman, the independent, has to win there. And then I believe, if my math is correct, that they need to win in one more state. And at this point, it doesn't look like they're going to do that. And that's the big problem. Right. So maybe it will be Colorado where Mark Udall is trailing. And you've looked at the polls and there's been some noise, a lot of pushback. This happens all the time. Candidates trailing say don't look at the polls. But you've really looked at them and say, yeah, he really is trailing. Yeah, I believe Mark Udall is definitely trailing there. I'd I bet a decent amount on that at this point. Previously on this program, you talked about the Alaska race and Mark Begich saying he's one of the best candidates. He's sort of outperforming what a Democrat should do in Alaska. And And let's add to the fact that polling in Alaska is crazy hard. Still, you think Alaska is very likely to be Republican? Here's the big thing, right? You can have polling errors, two, three points. Those are common. But now what you're seeing are the Republican leads in Alaska and in Colorado are starting to expand to the point that even if we have those polling errors, Republicans have built that sort of firewall that they could lose two or three points off their polling margins and still win. Here we go. This is a question, a macro question, and I don't want to ask you to uh, denigrate your competitors. Unless you want to, then I'd be excited for that. But there are a lot of poll forecasters like 538, Huffington Post does one, New York Times does one. I know Nate Silver, founder of your site, likes a few of those. Then there's the Washington Post, right? The Washington Post says it's 94% likely that the Republicans will take the Senate. Look, I don't care. Maybe they're right. It's just that if there's a cluster of polls that say 60-something percent, and there's one that says 94, either that guy's a genius or something's up. Well, I'll say this much about that much. I like the guys who are running that Washington Post model. They're nice guys. They're smart guys. I believe our forecast is correct. That's why we have our forecast. Yeah. And I'm going to stick with our forecast. Right. Do they emphasize something that you don't emphasize? Is there a big difference in the fundamentals that would explain the differences in them and kind of everyone else? 
I don't think there's a big difference in the fundamentals. I mean, at this point, all of us are really looking at the polling data, right? Yeah. I think what's going on is estimating that uncertainty, and they feel much more secure in what their data is telling them. I happen to be less secure. I have been burned many a times before in polling and in other things that we won't get into, and I think that our model does a very, very good job of estimating the uncertainty. In 2010, in 2008, I'm trying to pick off uh, non-presidential year elections. Have there been Senate candidates who have been shown to have a consistent lead that lost on Election Day? Sure. Um, In 2010, I mean, Harry Reid was probably the most obvious example where almost all of the public polls, I believe, out of the last 13 public polls, only two of them showed Sharon Engel not leading and Harry Reid not trailing. And sure enough, he won by six points. One of the key things in that race, though, was all the internal polls in that race showed that Reid was favored. It was just something that was wrong with the public polling. In the races that we have right now, I haven't been hearing those little birdies whispering into my ear, sweet little nothings, that these polls are wrong. Do you have any inkling or a race where you kind of really do question the polls or a national trend that we might not be picking up now? In 2014, I would say that I'm not all that worried. The two things that I would keep in mind on are like in North Carolina, for instance, mm-hmm. where Kay Hagan's doing very, very well. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking for a late break in a race, that would be one I would concentrate on. Right, right. So you're saying that's the sort of race where hey, you have no reason to question the polls, but it is kind of weird based on the fundamentals that Hagan is winning. That's right. Got it. All right. Well, Harry, I always enjoy talking to you. It does offer me some measure of discomfort that Michael Dukakis is merely a figure in history to you. I didn't realize how young you were. Uh, Well, Michael Dukakis is a very, very nice man from my understanding, and I wish him the best of luck. And he's doing quite well from my understanding up in Massachusetts. (laughs) Yeah, but the fact that you can only have read about him or see him in newsreels, not remember when he actually got into that tank like Snoopy. Harry Anton, senior political writer for 538. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. And now the latest development in Living Longer, brought to you by Prudential Financial. As human lifespans keep increasing, there's something like a zero chance that 65 will remain the standard retirement age. A lot of us will have to keep working just to make sure we have enough save for retirement. But more importantly, a lot of us will want to keep working, whether that means continuing in the same field or trying something completely new. But there's a darker side of people working longer, age discrimination in the workplace. It might not be as well known as race or gender discrimination, but ageism is real and it could become even more prevalent in the near future. So you'll be glad to know that there are good people working on this problem, working on things like new legislation and policies, and thinking about how we change social attitudes so we can protect older citizens, reduce strain on Social Security and Medicare, and help older workers do awesome work. If you'd like to read more about this and other fascinating longevity research, visit slate.com slash livinglonger. The Living Longer Project is sponsored by Prudential. Wacky tobacco, herb, bud, dope, Mary Jane, Santa Fe sagebrush, godlike greenery, weed, pot. Okay, I made a couple of those up. But we're talking about marijuana. And when we're talking about marijuana, how can you not talk about high times? It's really the best magazine about marijuana. A new book is out, a 40-year history of the world's most infamous magazine. All of these covers, eight of them with Tommy Chong, I think, really do make the case that our relationship with marijuana has changed and it's actually very well documented in this book. Dan Sky is the editor-in-chief of High Times Magazine, played a big role in putting together this compendium. Hello, Dan. Hey, how you doing? So 
our attitude towards marijuana has changed. And I think it's illustrated by the fact that Dense Guy is a pseudonym. It's a pen name, right? Indeed it is. Did you think you had to use it, and do you have to use it still? At the time, when I took the pen name, I was working for a different magazine coming out of the High Times office, which was Hemp Times, Uh which was championing the emerging hemp industry. Yeah. So I have a lot about, like, corded belts and stuff. Yeah, but basically, uh, you know, hacky sacks, things like that. (laughs) No, uh... It was a little bit more. We actually it was industrial hemp that we were trying to champion. You know, you know, seeds, uh, cold pressed oil, mm-hmm. all the fabric, fiber, all the stuff that can come out of hemp. So that was a uh, short lived magazine. So I when I once uh, Hemp Times folded, I became executive editor of High Times and uh, kept the uh, pen name. Did you feel you had to for legal reasons? Well, you know, it's you know, you had these dare programs out there, yeah, and you know, they that shocked the kids, and so and also I was a little league coach, and so uh, actually, actually that happened one time when I was doing a local news thing, and I showed up at Little League on Saturday, and everybody saw that. Hey, I saw you on TV, but you had a different name. <laughs> I go, yeah, well, that's me. <laughs> and did the parents were the parents worried, or did I'm gonna bet that one dad came up to you and you know started maybe talking about marijuana? Yeah, they go high times, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, but they're, they're always the next question, can I get any? Yeah. You know, but uh, no. And how I, many times they saw the dead live in 78, <laughs> yeah. So now, though, you're out under your real name to Well, some yes, extent? the New York Times is going to reveal me, and I'll even do it for Slate. My, real, it. Name, my real name is Malcolm McKinnon. Incredible name, isn't it? Malcolm. It's a good name. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very literary. So uh, you, you can Google that name. There are a few things under Malcolm as well. So uh-huh. I understand the uh, tetchiness about the perception then. Do you feel that you're in the free and clear now? With- Absolutely yeah. not. We yeah. are not in the free and clear. We have only two states that have legalized recreational marijuana. 48 states haven't. You are taking your life in your hands if you get busted in Nebraska or Kansas or in the Deep South. The whole drug war has been waged on the back of marijuana smokers. No one wants to go after meth people because those people are downright dangerous or the coke dealers. But marijuana people are fairly peaceful. And what's easier to bust than a grow room in a house where somebody's just sitting at home watching TV, smoking a joint. And if I look at the covers of High Times and I compare it to any other lifestyle magazines, so not Sports Illustrated, I think there's a bigger ethnic diversity with your covers than just about any other (laughs) magazine dedicated to a leisure pursuit than I can think of. Absolutely. We have rappers, we have white rock singers, models that you'll see that are just as pretty uh, as Elle or Vogue or Cosmopolitan. We go the gamut, man. We have have a ball with our covers. And, you know, some of our covers, especially in the first decade of High Times, were absolutely outrageous. Nobody had ever seen them before. I think it was was amazing. I remember one Christmas we had Truman Capote and Andy Warhol, you know, welcoming you, uh, you know, you know, Merry Christmas, all. You know, and, and I think Andy had a, a big old lollipop. Maybe it was Truman, one or the other. But it really, uh, that was the golden age of magazines back there in the 70s when Discovery came out and Geo and Psychology Today and High Times. We all rode this huge wave of new journalism. So it's uh, been a real ride for High Times, 40 years. Um, and we've, we've gone through our different eras, but we are on the upswing now. I'll tell you that much. I like this guy from 76, this cover. Yeah. Kind of controversial. This is... This is Santa Claus. He's smoking what looks like a Gandalf pipe. I don't know how they were able to jump the gun on that, but he's... <laughs> our Christmas covers do well. We've had wreaths of pot, you know, uh, the great Jack Herrer, our, our, who was the, he was the granddaddy of the entire uh, marijuana movement. He's dead now, but he, he even posed as Santa Claus one time. So I actually shot about 20 six of those covers. So really? I'm very, very, uh, very uh, proud of that. Fact. You did everything for the magazine. I'm going to blow my own horn here, but since no one else... Well, you blew your cover. Might as well blow your horn. <laughs> I have done more features uh, in the magazine and more feature interviews and shot more photos for the magazine than anybody in history. I've been with the magazine 23 years, so that's over a third of my life with high times. Can you imagine that? Wow. 
So did a subject uh, that you wrote about ever get in trouble because he was featured in High Times? I don't think, you know, I, you know, hey, we're allowed to write anything we want. Uh, we're, yeah. we're, we are responsible journalists. I think, I think the most controversial thing we ever did was probably put Jimmy Carter on the cover with a Coke spoon up to his <laughs> nose because he had that big Coke scandal back in the White House. I don't know if people remember that, but his, uh, his doctor was... Uh, prescribing uh, 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 quaaludes to, to somebody uh, who went in and shouldn't have been. And somebody uh, then said that, yeah, I, I snorted Coke with him at a, uh, at a party. And so that was a, that was a real scandal for Jimmy. And so we put Jimmy on the cover with a Coke spoon up his nose. What sells better, covers of Santa Claus or Jimmy Carter doing Coke? Jimmy Carter, uh, was, that was the biggest seller in High Times history. Oh, my God. It really was because it was so controversial. Nobody had ever seen anything like that before. It was pretty wild. I, this is my relationship with High Times was I know it exists. I think it's funny. Every once in a while I'd see a friend's and the fact that you have the centerfold mm -hmm. just is unbelievably amusing. And right. that is an institution. Did you ever try to go away from that? No. You've no. always had that... the uh, leafy buds at the center of High Times. It's, it hasn't always been a, a, a bud. We put, certainly put peyote. Okay. In, in the center vault, we put cocaine back in the 80s. We had some very, very alluring cocaine <laughs> covers. I mean, perversely attractive cocaine centerfolds. Then yeah. did you make the conscious decision, we got to get away from cocaine? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, every, everybody was along for the ride in the early 80s with cocaine. And uh, High Times was along for the ride, too. Uh, High Times was losing its edge. Uh, nobody was reading anymore. It was going downhill. And uh, we had an editor-in-chief come along in 1988 who said, we've got to make a U-turn. And yeah. we went back and we embraced cannabis. And then uh, the activist movement, which was very, very strong at that time and continues to be, hyped High Times. The rise of hip-hop was a, a great amplifier for high times and things have just gotten better for the last 20 years so as a little league coach i'm going to assume you had a little leaguer son daughter yes i did okay so what, how, what was the talk with him about marijuana how'd that go uh, you know i told the kids or, or you know they, they my kids knew people who smoked pot and i explained to them that people can you they can lose their federal scholarships they can't get scholarships they can't get into the service academies mm -hmm. all because they smoked uh, toked a little bit mm -hmm. and i also explained to them you know that the government has been wrong on many many things the women's right to vote, uh, slavery. I mean, the government has been wrong over and over and over Prohibition. again. Prohibition. So, right, I, you know, yeah. I t told my kids, this is one more thing that the government is wrong about. You know, and it also happened to my rearing of my children also happened to coincide with all these medical breakthroughs, uh, discoveries of cannabis. So I was able to communicate that as well. So I, I lived in a lucky era. But I'll tell you this much. I go out to the West Coast and I, I travel all over the place, see grow rooms and gardens from up and down the West Coast, and people smoke very freely in front of their children. And what is the big deal? So what was uh, then your advice for them for use of marijuana? What? I said I would prefer they not use it until they're 18 years old. Yeah. And I said, I do not want you to drink Period. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, but as far as marijuana, you said, you see that I smoke. I'm a photographer. I'm a writer. I'm a little league coach. I've been married for 35 years. I am no threat to society. I am a, I'm an asset to society. How old are your kids now? My daughter is 28 and my son is 24. And I, I just became a, a grandfather two weeks ago. Congratulations. Like yeah. Like yeah, yeah. And they turned out well. That's right. And, yeah. you know, and also, by the way, uh, I smoked, I was in the fitness industry for years. For, uh, I was a top aerobics instructor, taught 10,000 classes, and I was high for 95% of them. <laughs> no, I'm dead serious. I had my, I had my stress levels tested. I'm a, I was a, I'm a heavy sm pot smoker. I will make no bones about it. 
and I had my uh, my fitness levels and it measured to a marathon runner. Did you have to then pick certain strains of pot that wouldn't sap your energy? <laughs> Back in New York in the 80s, we didn't have much choice yeah, of pot. Yeah. You know, it was like the $400 stuff or the $250 But stuff. it we, didn't sap your energy? No, absolutely. I'm a very high energy person. Okay, I get that. Know? But it does. I mean, it does have that effect. No. No? no you don't think no, it? No, no, it doesn't. I mean, if you smoke a sativa, it's yeah. actually energy enhancing. It's a great work strain. I mean, people in New York, unfortunately, don't know the difference between an indica and an a sativa and the differences. You know, a lot of people are buying, oh, good, it smells good, must be great. Then they're, they're on the floor, they're sleeping. Yeah. You know, but then sometimes you'll get some stuff and you smoke it before you go to bed and you're all of a sudden you're wide awake. I don't know if you've ever encountered that kind of pot. That's the kind of pot I like. I, I want to move. I want to, you know, I do things. You've got 10,000 hours of aerobics to get to. 10 4, man. <laughs> I, I, my resting pulse rate is at, at like, you know, low 50s. So, um, you Unbelievable. Know, okay. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you this. And yeah. so there's beer advocate. Let's think about these <laughs> words beer advocate, cigar aficionado, wine mm-hmm. connoisseur, right? They're mm-hmm. all trying to convey something else. If High Times were to rename itself, what? Marijuana, what? Well, here's the. the here's or the, pot, what? You know, here, get this. Getting high is an incorrect term. When you smoke pot, you don't get high. You don't get stoned. People smoke in order to feel better. Mm-hmm. So I would call it better times. Here's to better times. That's what I think it should be called, if anything. Better times. Because that's what we're trying to do when we're, sm- when we're smoking marijuana, is just to improve things. We're not smoking it for any other reason. You know, it's not that big a deal. It's, just, it's you know, finally people are beginning to to see that, and they, 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 it's it's a great thing when the when people begin to reject the the government's propaganda. It's a wonderful thing. The polling has caught up with, I think, a place you've been for a while. The majority of people think of marijuana as benign. Mm-hmm. And it, marijuana legalization as a ballot issue mm-hmm. used to always fail. I mean, mm-hmm. it had a perfect record of failing mm-hmm. until it didn't, mm-hmm. right? Gay marriage has kind of gone in that way, too. Yeah. What do you think the future is? Are we going to have 50 states where it's legal? Are there going to be so many different rules in every jurisdiction? How's it going to go? It's an evolution. But I'm telling you this much. In two years, when California goes completely legal, all the dominoes are going to fall. Remember, Colorado's got 6 million people. California's got 36 million people. They already have a marijuana culture in place. They have the genetics. They have generations of of families who have been growing. When California goes legal, game over. Dan Sky, that is still the name on the masthead, so I will thank you as Dan Sky, editor-in-chief of High Times Magazine. Why, thank you. And I will plug this book, High Times, a 40-year history of the world's most infamous magazine. Thank you, Dan. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. And now the spiel, which might sound different right now, but it will all become clear in the end. Bellevue Hospital in New York City now houses an Ebola patient. Dr. Craig Spencer of New York City returned from Liberia a week ago, took his temperature every day, detected a fever yesterday, immediately checked himself into the hospital. Mayor Bill de Blasio, speaking today, has said what so many other officials have said. He just said it with a slight New York accent. I'm going to ask our colleagues in the media to help get out a lot of information here and help dispel myths and help get truths out. If you, it's crucial to emphasize it's not an airborne disease. It's not a casual contact disease. Again, a, something of a parallel to when HIV and AIDS started, and everyone who was here in the city remembers that crisis and remembers all the challenges, all the questions. And then it became clear that it could only be transmitted through direct, intimate contact, bodily fluids, nothing short of that. 
Because Mayor de Blasio isn't up for election in 10 days, his words probably won't be picked apart and pilloried like the presidents have been, but also his explanations and appeals to rationality probably won't change many minds. First, let me tell you some reassuring things about Ebola, and then let me tell you why this news won't do much reassuring. One, there have been eight, a total of eight Ebola cases in the United States. I can list every one. There was missionary Nancy Wrightbull, Dr. Ken Brantley. They were treated as patients in Emory Hospital in Atlanta, cured. There was another unnamed patient also treated at Emory, released symptom-free. There was Rick Sacra, another doctor who was treated at Nebraska Medical Center, discharged. There was Thomas Eric Duncan, a Liberian, who went to Dallas Presbyterian Hospital, turned away. He later died. He was the only one to die. In fact, the two nurses that acquired Ebola treating him, Amber Vinson and Nina Pham, maybe you missed this, but right before the news of the New York patient broke, Amber Vinson was released from the hospital, and right after, Nina Pham was declared Ebola-free. Cameraman Ashoko Mukpo was treated in Nebraska and declared Ebola-free after just three days. Craig Spencer is the ninth patient. One has died, seven have been declared Ebola-free. Right now, the words associated with Ebola in America are words like scary, uncertain, and life-threatening. But if we project six months into the future, it's likely we'll look back at this time as a period of medical bravery and heroism. We've been told that the death rate for Ebola is 50%. Well, so far in the United States, it's 12%. Is this a testament to luck, to technological advancement, to maybe government competence? Well, that sort of credit will never be given. But I do want to point out that what I'm trying to do there, right there, was by asking you to imagine an alternative future that was a conscious attempt to activate a different part of your brain, that the normal Ebola assurances activate. Because social scientists have noted that there's this effect. When people have a strong opinion and it runs counter to facts, you don't even register the facts as facts. You register them as confirmation. You don't hear Ebola's not airborne. You don't hear you can't get Ebola unless you come in direct contact with an Ebola patient. All you hear is Ebola, Ebola, Ebola. I'll concede it's not as if there's zero usefulness in the usual refrain we heard from the president and the mayor and me just now. People have to form initial impressions, and every time someone lays out the facts, they'll fall on a, f a few set of ears for the first time. But beyond the assurances, I think there are other things we could do. First, we have to think about the audiences that don't watch news conferences or newscasts about news conferences or listen to podcasts about newscasts about news conferences. I'm probably right here, right now, just reassuring the already reassured. I think it's important to express these facts about how hard it is to get Ebola, but to express them also in media environments that aren't full of these facts already. Like I think BuzzFeed should, for a week, amend its most viral videos with the phrase, Ebola isn't airborne. I think celebrities and hip-hop artists and Kim Kardashian should tweet the hashtag, Ebola isn't airborne. I think the NFL should have their players wear the message, Ebola isn't airborne as eye black, and have the referees say it right before they announce their first holding penalty into the PA system. Next, I think it's important to state the facts in forums they're not heard. That's why I loved what Shepard Smith did. It's not that there's no one else making this point with passion. It's that there's no one else making it with passion on the Fox News channel. Do not listen to the hysterical voices on the radio and the television or read the fear-provoking words online. The people who say and write hysterical things are being very irresponsible. 
And third, we should show, not just tell, how safe we are. Like Judge Clay Jenkins of Dallas County going to the places where Eric Duncan lived. Like President Obama hugging nurse Nina Fahm. And like why I'm not doing the spiel from a studio, but from a restaurant in Manhattan called The Meatball Shop. I've eaten here with my sons before. I will eat here again. This is a restaurant where Dr. Craig Spencer ate before he detected a fever. I talked to the manager here. He said the whole staff showed up today. They're open tonight for dinner. And I could tell you, the meatballs are delicious. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the Gist's producer. Her enemies include crappy cell phone lines and the cat who's been pawing at Mabel a little too closely. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, counts as his enemy the flesh of beasts, also Sinestro. The enemy of Joel Meyer, Slate's managing producer of podcasts, is the bizarro world Joel Meyer, Mole Gyre, an underground dwelling rodent who only likes mainstream pop music. You can subscribe in iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. Get our daily email at slate.com slash gist email or sign up for Yo and sign up for podcast when you get that Yo app. We'll tell you when the show's ready. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. It is here that you could bait me into arguments. It happens. A throwaway line will sometimes be labeled an insult to a certain group of peoples. I might defend myself. I might be right. I might be wrong. But this is where the conversation happens on Facebook.com slash SlateGist. And you can email the gist at Slate.com. My enemies, they're a legion. They're the forces of ignorance, of pestilence, of ignorance and pestilence. We'll also have incense. Ignorance, pestilence, incense, and Hunter Pence. Plays for the Giants and rooting for the Royals. So incense... Pestilence, ignorance, Hunter Pence. But to my enemies, though I cast thee aside, I say to you, thanks for listening. Hello, Gist listeners. Felix Salmon here from Slate Money. If you listen to this week's podcast, you will find out how the fine print in your job contract could restrict your job options, even or perhaps especially if you're a sandwich maker at Jimmy John's. Search for Slate Money in iTunes or visit slate.com slash podcasts.